If you have ever been in a place where you think that you have gone too far, you know how overwhelming that can be. When one thing has added up on another and one sin has piled up on another, has piled up on another, has piled up on another, where you have a mountain of sin or a mountain of problems, and you feel like, even though despite having a mountain of problems, you're down in a pit, and it's going to be hard to dig yourself dig your way out of the mess that you're in, you know how overwhelming it can be. It could be credit card debt. It could be finding yourself at the bottom of a liquor bottle or at the bottom of a pill bottle. It could be trouble in a marriage. It could be many things. But you know how it is when one thing has led to another and one sin has piled up on top of another. You know how sin can lead to other sin. When coveting leads to false witness, leads to hatred, leads to adultery. Sin leads to other sins. This is how Joseph's brothers felt whenever they came to approach Joseph. That is what their life with Joseph had been. And humanly speaking, they were right to think that he might retaliate, that he might pay them back for, quote-unquote, all the evil that they had done to him. If you rewind in the story, you can see all of the things that led up to Joseph's brothers being where they were. You can read that last part of Genesis, the Joseph narratives, and find out how they're coveting after Joseph's robe and Joseph's admiration that he had from their father Jacob and the natural gifts and abilities and dreaming dreams that God had given Joseph, you can see how their coveting had led to hatred and how their hatred had led even to the point of considering murder and how that had led to them bearing false witness and selling him into slavery and how that had led to them bearing false witness and lying to their father about it and how all of that had led to Joseph being in Egypt, eventually imprisoned for something that he didn't even do for many years. And his brothers probably didn't even know that part, although perhaps at this point, after having had a chance to catch up with Joseph, they had found out about that too, and they probably felt kind of bad for that as well. One sin had led to another, had led to another. They were in a pit of despair. They thought they were the ones that threw Joseph in the pit, but they were the ones who ended up in the pit. And so now they are led to try and dig their way out, led to one more lie. They think to themselves, here's a plan. Now that Jacob, our father, is dead, what we're going to tell Joseph so that he doesn't retaliate against us is that Jacob said before he died, our father said before he died, you need to forgive your brothers because they are your servants now. Just like the prodigal son that we talked about last week, they want to come back into the family, not even as family, but they are so sorry for their sins, they want to come back as servants. But Joseph gives them a very amazing and a very clear message, and he doesn't even really listen to everything they have to say. He doesn't address all of the excuses and what they said that their father said, which was really a lie. He says in so many words, you are not too far gone. Do not fear, for am I in the place of God. 
Joseph knows that it is not up to him to decide when someone is and when someone is not completely and utterly condemned for something that they have done. Joseph knows that his father, his true father, his father in heaven's mercy and grace is abundant. It reaches far and wide and deep, even to the tops of the mountains of sin and even into the depths of the pits of despair, which the brothers find themselves in. And he knows for God, they are not too far gone. And he reciprocates that forgiveness that he knows the Father in heaven has for his people to his brothers. And he comforts them. He more than comforts them. He says, I will take care of you. I'll take care of you and your little ones. You are forgiven. Do not fear. For I am not in the place to condemn. I am not God. And so first of all, if you take anything else home with you today, if you remember anything after you fill up at the potluck after service today, remember this, that you are not too far gone. If you find yourself in a pit, if you find yourself with a mountain of problems before you, you are not too far gone. God's mercy is great and abundant and wide, and it reaches to places that you could not even imagine. And we'll get to that more in a moment, but more about Joseph first. Something else can happen when we think about being too far gone. The fear that Joseph's brothers have that Joseph will retaliate against them is, as we said, completely human, completely rational. And the fact that Joseph acts differently than that is actually kind of a shock. If you were thrown into a pit, attempted murder by your brothers, having ended up in prison for years because of it and all sorts of other problems that you had experienced in life, just go read the story. It's one of the best narratives in Holy Scripture. If you had found yourself in a place like that, you'd be mad at your brother, at your brothers. You would try and retaliate against them. Most of us would. It is completely rational to at least hold some animosity for all of that. The fear that the brothers have is completely rational. And that shows one tendency that we have as poor sinners, one tendency that we have toward other people when it comes to being too far gone, and that is to assume that other people are too far gone. It would have been completely rational to think, for Joseph to think, my brothers, they've done too much. There's no way that God can really have mercy on them. And that is what Jesus gets to in the gospel for today. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Take the log out of your own eye before worrying about the speck that is in your neighbors. It is easy to look at our neighbors and to judge and to condemn them and to think that their sins are so big, even when we have a log in our own eye looking at that speck, thinking it is so big, so massive, that they are too far gone for Christ to handle. It is easy to look at that family member that struggles with some sort of addiction and think that there is no end in sight, there is no hope for them. It is easy to look at your child who left the church so many years ago and hasn't come back yet and to think, I don't know if it's possible. I don't know if God 
could really bring them back. It is easy, as we talked about last week, to look out at the state of the government, at the state of the state, at the state of our country, or even at the state of the church at large in this place, and to say, I'm not sure if it will survive. I'm not sure how long we can keep doing these things we're doing. I'm not sure if everything is just too far gone. It is easy to make those judgments, to put ourselves in the place of the judge most high, to put ourselves in the place of the one who is called to condemn, and to say what is and what is not, finally, in the most absolute sense, the final end of this person, that person, this thing, or that thing. It is easy to think that someone is too far gone. Now, as an aside, I would be remiss not to explain this passage in Luke chapter 6 just a little bit more clearly. For our world does like to use this judge not verse quite a bit. It's their favorite verse nowadays. Judge not, lest you be judged. That's become the world's favorite verse to throw at Christians who will say what is sin and what is not sin in the public square. And they will say to you, who are you to judge? Don't you know the Bible says, judge not lest you be judged? They will sneer at you. First of all, the reason that they are trying to do that is to try and turn that verse into some kind of radical hedonism where no one is ever allowed to say what is right and wrong, and so that means that they can live their life however they please. They can participate in whatever kind of immorality, whatever kind of debaucherous sin that they want to, and you're not allowed to think anything, and you're not even allowed to say anything about it publicly. So that's why they want to do it. And that, of course is completely contrary to Holy Scripture. That is not what Jesus is saying here. As you well know, if you've read any more than just that verse in the Bible, then Jesus and his apostles are no strangers to calling out public sin. Jesus is the one who flips over the money-changing tables in the temple. Paul constantly exhorts his churches to avoid such things as sexual immorality and debauchery and the like. Rather than radical hedonism, let's look at the hinge verse that makes all this fit together. When Jesus talks after he says, judge not lest you be judged, condemn not lest you be condemned, he says this in verse 38, the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And what is the measure that he is talking about there? What is the measure that Christians, that the Bible itself, that God himself uses to judge and to condemn and to forgive? What is the measure that all of that is based around? It is repentance. It is repentance and the forgiveness of sins. It is faith in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection for the salvation of those who would call on him. And so... If and when you judge a public sin, 
The question is, what measure are you using? Are you using a measure different than the measure you would use against yourself or different than the measure, better yet, that God will use against you on the final day? In other words, is that a sin that needs repenting of? Is the sinner a repentant sinner? Is that sinner trusting in the forgiveness and mercy of Christ one for him on the cross to save. If he is, then the sin is forgiven, and you have no right to condemn him. If he is not, then you can say, that's a sin it needs repenting of. It is also hypocritical, as Jesus goes on to talk about, with the log and the speck, to be going around and condemning public sins when you yourself have sins you need to repent of and that you are an unrepentant sinner. The measure is repentance. That's the hinge that makes this all work. And so when the world comes to you and says, oh, you're not allowed to judge me. Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged. I can do whatever I want. When you are a repentant sinner and when they are unrepentant and they're just trying to to get away with debauchery and immorality. That's really no different than when Satan comes into the garden and says, did God really say? It's just twisting the words of Scripture around. It's just taking the words of Scripture out of context. But let's get back to the actual point of all of this, which is the abundant forgiveness that God has for us in Christ. Despite the great sinfulness of our age, despite the great sinfulness and the mountains of sins that we have piled up for ourselves and that others have piled up around us, the forgiveness that God has for us in Christ. The brothers are worried that they are too far gone to be blessed. And the Pharisees, who condemn the sinners and tax collectors, which Jesus is warning here when he says, Judge not, lest you be judged, they think that the sinners and tax collectors are too far gone. What is true in both of these cases is that they are ignoring the gospel that Jesus has already proclaimed to them. If you go back in Genesis, the whole previous chapter in Genesis, chapter 49, Jacob had gathered all of his sons and had proclaimed to them how much God was going to bless them. The 12 tribes of Israel, in what ways God was going to work through these 12 tribes to bless him, to bring about the birth of Jesus Christ eventually, even from the tribe of Judah. God had promised them blessing. He had promised them riches. He had promised them forgiveness. And yet they didn't think it could be true. They didn't think that that blessing could really be the case. They didn't think that that would be carried out by their brother Joseph. And in Luke chapter 6, Jesus had already told the tax collectors and the sinners and the Pharisees. He had told everyone there, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. No matter who you are, no matter where you came from, if you repent, if you become poor in spirit and turn and call on the name of Jesus Christ, you will be saved. They both thought, they all thought that someone Maybe themselves, maybe someone else was too far gone for anything that God said in his word to be true. 
And the fact of the matter is, if we are honest about how far gone we have gone at times, where everywhere we have looked, if you look close enough, you can find sin creeping in and creeping out of your life in various places. You can find little piles of sin stored up in the closet or wherever they may be stored up. If we are honest about how sinful and how many piles and pits we have dug up for ourselves, sometimes it is hard to believe the words of God. Sometimes it is hard to believe he really could forgive a sinner like you, a sinner like me. But I ask you this today, who are you? Who are you to say who God could forgive and what he could forgive and how much he could forgive? Who are you to doubt God's loving mercy and kindness? Who are you to say what kind of mercy the loving Father should shower down on us? Part of not being in the place of God is not just judging others or not judging others. Part of being not in the place of God is trusting everything that he says about you, that you really are forgiven. That he really has taken each and every one of those sins, whether big, whether small, whether known, whether not known. He has taken each and every one of those sins and piled them up high. Dug a huge pit, piled them up so high on Jesus Christ. On the cross at Golgotha for Christ to die there with them. And you can trust that. You can hold firm to that. You don't have to dig yourself out. He already dug you out of the pit, brought you up to life, brought you up to the point of resurrection and eternal life. You don't have to climb out. You don't have to fight against it. You don't have to figure out a way to do it all on your own. He has done it all for you. And that, of course, is not a license to keep on sinning. We do not continue sinning that grace may abound by no means, but when we have grasped that amazing, that boundless love of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, we seek to live a new life in him, a life hidden in him, a life fully of Jesus Christ, as Joseph did for his brothers, comforting them so that they would not fear. This mercy is unbelievable. But I'll leave you with this. What is even more unbelievable is not only that Christ forgives poor, miserable sinners, not only that he goes and seeks out every nook and cranny of sin in your life just so he can forgive it because he loves you that much, but what is even more amazing is that he takes all of those piles of sin, all of the troubles in this world, and he turns it into good, into his good purposes. If you've ever come to Sunday morning Bible study, you know one of my favorite verses in the Bible is this. Genesis 50, verse 20 and 21. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about the salvation of many. God takes a boy thrown into a pit, sold into slavery in Egypt, worked out of slavery, back into prison, accused of something he didn't do, brought out of prison, All so that in a massive famine, 
that struck not only one country, but many countries at the time, that that boy could save many, many lives, could store up grain in Egypt so that even his own brothers, who threw him in that pit years later, could eat of the fruit of righteousness. God took Paul, or Saul, rather, he took Saul, a zealous persecutor of Christians, and turned him into Paul, a zealous preacher of the gospel. He takes Nineveh, the most pagan country you can imagine, and turns it into a country that puts on sackcloth and ashes and confesses and glorifies the name of God. He takes troubled marriages and he makes them into marriages that glorify his name and witness his goodness to all creation. He takes addicts who seem to struggle so much and brings them out of their affliction to witness and to testify to God's steadfast and patient love. This is the nature of the mercy of our Lord. Romans 8:28. If you keep reading Romans 8, we read some of it today. If you keep on reading, says it clear enough, God is working all things together for the good of those who love him. And so, dear saints, remember this. You are not God. You don't get to say when someone has hardened their heart. God does. You don't get to say when someone is condemned beyond repair. God does. But as far as you know, as far as you can see, God's mercy and God's grace and God's love are rich and wide and boundless. And he is working even evil things, even wicked things, even horrible things together for good. Whenever you see something that you think is too far gone, whether it's your own life or the lives of your neighbors, God sees great potential. And so today, receive his great and abundant mercy and grace and look. Behold what God is able to accomplish, even things that you could never imagine. To him be all the honor and glory now and forever. Amen.